Hello and welcome to the American Cinema Foundation Movie Podcast. I am your host Titus and today I am joined by my friend Professor John Presnell. We will be talking about De Palma and especially about Carlito's Way. First of all, John, thanks for joining me on the podcast. Pleasure to be here. It's the first time we're recording. Yes. Please introduce yourself. Well, thank you, Titus. Yeah, I'm John Presnall, professor of government at a small community college in Texas called College of the Mainland on the Texas Gulf Coast. Like I say, I'm a great watcher of movies and a big admirer of De Palma's films in particular. And I'm very happy to be here happy to have you the only guy i know who likes the palma the way <laughs> i do and also i think we share a sense that this is something of a guilty pleasure but also something truly thoughtful strange as it may first seem and admittedly in need of a certain kind of defense Brian De Palma cannot be, I think, popular with conservatives especially, but perhaps more broadly cannot be popular with decent people. That's right. right. He obviously has a problem with conservatives, I think, because at least some of his movies have a much more ideological, uh, I don't know if it's a left wing, but surely an ideological edge to them that would be critical of things that conservatives wish to defend. And of course, I think audiences as well sometimes get turned off to his movies. I think he tends to divide audiences. The side that tends to like him tends to be maybe people who seek after things in movies, maybe not things that conservatives would defend, the violence and the sex. And I think the critics, too. He has a bit of a problem with critics uh, who tend to see him just simply as borrowing from Hitchcock and other greats in cinema history and see him as just form over substance. And there's not much to his stories or character. And he's just a stylistic master who's empty of pretty much anything else worth discussing. Yeah, so we're in a bit of a sweet spot here. Our conservative friends cannot follow us into liking something so indecent. But on the other Mm -hmm. hand, our liberal friends don't care to reflect on the moral implications of the fascination with and the inquiry into indecent stuff. Mm -hmm. The Palma is too aware and makes you too aware of the fact that not even movie making and movie watching is an innocent enterprise. He makes you too aware of the fact that our social conventions do part of their work by hiding ugly things that we should be thoughtful about in order to be seriously moral, not just in a complacent or expedient way. And at the risk of losing all of our audience, we're going to have to defend this guy because uh, he's a very thoughtful movie maker. And whatever his politics, what his movies show about America is quite thoughtful. And I don't think ultimately it's un-American, much less anti-American. It has some kind of strained, pained relation to America, but it is an embrace of the strangeness of America itself. Yeah, I don't see him as some kind of anti-American critic who just wants to ruthlessly criticize all institutions all the way down and see them as nothing but morally corrupt and unjust. But there is this strained relationship, this kind of tension, I guess, between an idealism, for lack of a better word, that is in tension with the kind of corruption. And so that strained is maybe a lost sense of love, of the justice of one's country, perhaps because one held it in too high esteem. And then a cynicism that can be born from the loss of that love and attachment to those high ideals. That tension plays out stylistically in his movies and plays out in the dramatic action of his films. And I think maybe even in the man himself, that in his own relationship to the United States. So De Palma is also useful at this level. He can help you inquire into your idealism, into your cynicism, when your idealism leads to cynicism. And there's a lot of that, especially with regard to partisanship, but also the culture nowadays. Mm -hmm. But also he's trying to teach America to live with some disappointments. 
to not turn away from things that don't live up to your highest expectations. I think so. The encounter with cynicism and a failure of uh, what it was that one was attached to in the highest sense leads him but to an attempt to see if one can deal with living with these tensions. I think most of his films end on a somber, dour tone, if not even tragic note. It's hard to think of a happy ending in most De Palma films, how one carries that on outside of the film. Maybe he's just trying to point out that we need to encounter a sense of this kind of mourning without then reacting in a way that thinks that everything needs to be radically transformed. If he can carry you as an audience to the end of the movie, you will have a sobering experience. And I think that's just needful. We're too addicted to happy ends, even though we know most of our happy ends aren't plausible. They just tyrannize over us. They come out of a kind of fear that we wouldn't be able to deal with things in any other way. But I think that the Palmas best movies really do show that you can live with learning what's ugly and what part of life just is less beautiful or less successful than you hoped. I think that at the same time he's trying to get decent audiences to have more sympathy for people who are fellow Americans but who live indecent or criminal lives. Mm -hmm. Partly because they too are part of America, partly because their motives are all American. I don't think the heroes in the Palma movies are mere caricatures of America or mere freaks. They're supposed to show what unusual things can happen in America when a strange kind of character and a strange series of circumstances meet. These would be the things to which people are least attuned. Not necessarily the things in which the general audience is least interested, but the things that are hardest to understand because they stray farthest from the common things in American experience or the common characters people are used to as they grow up. It seems that this cinema stretches the believable, but it also just gives people a broader experience of what's going on around them. That's right. I think there's emphasis on the extraordinary his first major hit was based on the Stephen King novel, Carrie. So you have something like telekinesis, which is obviously extraordinary. But his emphasis on crime and gangsters and their violent lives and how they find themselves in a circumstance that is beyond the bounds of common experience in the United States stretches, therefore, the believability of a lot of his movies. But I think you're right. The reaction of the characters here is not implausibly American. It opens up the audience to things that maybe they don't want to confront or they're just uh, unfamiliar with in American life. This, I think, is one of the important things about cinema, because cinema is the only common experience in America that isn't essentially filtered through partisan lenses. And in that sense, it is a commons where people should get a sense of why they look at some part of the country or at some phenomenon or at some event and think, what the hell's happening here? (laughs) With the Palma, you get your dues. You are allowed to think that this is really weird and hard to understand, but at the same time, you're confronted with it. Both the disbelief and the need to make sense of it are cinematic reproductions of basic experiences. Now, they may be rare, uncommon experiences, but they are part of American life. That's right. What De Palma also does or highlights straightforwardly, though, is the cinematic nature of the events and characters that we're watching. He likes to foreground the things that are hidden in movies themselves about editing and sound and the role of the director, the relationship of the audience to the movie that they're watching. And these things make the audience, if they're willing to go there, maybe a little bit uncomfortable as well, that here they are sitting in a dark room watching a big screen of these events that are sucking them in emotionally. The character and story 
and yet they also recognize a certain degree of manipulation involved in the telling of this story. And that's something else that tends not to want to be foregrounded, obviously, in most movies to be effective, is to remind the audience that they're watching a movie. Yep, at this level, again, this is just going to be unpopular, but I think this is the most obvious of the ways in which Brian De Palma is trying to do a moral service to his fellow Americans. Everybody knows that at some level, the media, whichever medium we're talking about, can be manipulative. And he's trying to show people that and to get them comfortable with the thought and to try to find out where would this lead? What might the problem here be? instead of just being manipulated, which would turn storytelling into a kind of wish fulfillment at the personal level and a kind of propaganda at the social level. He's trying to stay away from that. That's right. He's not even an enemy of genre. He just wants to be thoughtful about it and to make it explicit for the benefit of his audience. It, in a sense, levels the playing field. Well, explain a little bit more the leveling the playing field. Usually the director is at an advantage over his audience because he knows where he's taking them and they don't. And if they think they know where the story is tending, they have no idea how they will be affected, for example, in terms of mood. Mm -hmm. The Mm -hmm. typical Hollywood attitude to filmmaking is that whatever you leave out of the picture, you don't want your audience to be aware of. You don't want your audience to know that there's a frame around what you are showing them. And I'm not against that or against genre, but I do appreciate the moral education about filmmaking that you get with someone like De Palma. This is the frame here. Why is this here? It could be shown in another way. It flatters sometimes your inclination. Sometimes it bewilders you. You're aware that what's happening here is not entirely innocent. To even add another dimension to this, in many of his movies, and I think even in Carlito's way, if we look at the characters in relationship to each other in terms of the story, there's often a character in his movies who is himself a kind of a casting director, a film director, and who is trying to establish some kind of plot in which the others will play a role. And so we see this reflected even in the content of the stories in many of his movies. And in the first instance, you have De Palma showing the seedier sides of America that it doesn't want to confront, the extraordinary aspects that we don't ordinarily see in our common life or even in cinema. Secondly, we have the cinematic techniques that remind us that we're watching a film and that, as you put it, kind of levels the playing field between audience and director. And on the one hand, flatters our self-conscious awareness but on the other hand can bewilder us and make us aware of how we're being manipulated by the movie. And then on the third level, the story itself oftentimes has at least one character setting the stage on which he's attempting and usually fails to get other characters to play for whatever end it is he's trying to pursue. Yes, this is, I think, the deepest part of De Palma's reflections on what poetry itself does in our lives that we ourselves tell stories to each other, whether it's gossip or very important things, that help us form judgments on events, on other people, whether near or far, and stories in which we try to justify ourselves to ourselves, and stories in which we try to make sense of events so that we know how to act. The wholeness of these plans is entirely fictitious. It's just part of the storytelling we do that we learn young by learning the forms of poetry that dominate our times. And in ours Mm -hmm. and the Palma's times, that means the movies. 
in some ways we all live in Hollywood storytelling. Mm -hmm. But of course we can also become aware of it and of course there are also all sorts of parts of life where we are free from that, just like there are parts where we are unselfconsciously part of movies. Mm -hmm. And anybody who has known disappointment or heartbreak or a business deal gone bad knows what it means to have plans, to have those plans turn to a story in your head and then it turns out it doesn't come to a happy ending. And there's a question yep. of why. And Brian De Palma tries to show you throughout all sorts of things to which you need to pay attention to figure out why this is not such a successful story. Why isn't this going to be a happy ending? Why doesn't this fulfill our dearest wishes? And I think that's just a needful education for everybody who lives in an age of media. Yes, it is. Just to be able to come to recognize one's own ambitions and what one thinks is important with regard to your own life in the story you tell yourself, how much is that story itself just unconsciously or semi-consciously playing out forms that we've learned from watching cinema, from our own poetry, but then trying to create some degree of distance. On the one hand, that the poem is a whole poem, and yet the ending is uncertain and has just as much of a chance of not succeeding. And so how is one going to deal with the failure of one's own story? But to distance oneself to a certain extent from that, the way you unconsciously adopt another story that is part of the larger poetry of cinema. There's just a lot going for Brian De Palma when you think about what he's trying to do. All of this, of course, depends on looking at his movies and trying to discern his intention by thinking that he's an American trying to reflect on his times and his society and that the various devices he creates, the various stories he chooses to tell and the way he tells them have a moral intention ultimately. And that's what we're trying to do here. We'll talk about the relationship between Carlito's way and American mm -hmm. cinema and De Palma's own cinema to mm -hmm. see how this reflection emerges. So let's first talk about the most obvious thing. Ten years apart, De Palma makes these two big gangster movies, Scarface and Carlito's way with incredibly interesting, fascinating, if not exactly attractive, gangsters at the center. And I'll start us off with this note. Scarface is an ugly, scary name, and it shows you exactly what the problem is from the beginning. Life for Scarface has been a mutilating experience. Mm -hmm. Whereas in the other case, Carlito's way makes us wonder, is this the way of a gangster, or is there another way that's being discussed here? This dovetails nicely with the difference between the two characters. Scarface is not given to reflection, and he doesn't seem to have much of an interiority. As you noted, the ugliness of Scarface, just the very title itself, is different than Carlito's way, where there is an attempt to aspire to the beautiful, some sense of paradise, a theme that carries over that's also in Scarface. But in Scarface, we have our character, Tony Montana. He gets out of detention, finds his first job working in a food truck called Paradise. And then, as you mentioned, there's no reflection there. He relentlessly pursues his ambitions. In Carlito's way, he is moving towards something that points beyond and causes him to be self-reflective. Of course, Scarface, it's the rise of Scarface. And here, we don't see the rise of Carlito as drug kingpin. We rather see him leaving prison on a technicality and his attempt to get out of the criminal life towards what he views as paradise. Yup, you could say that if Tony Montana had had a bit of brains and had ended up in jail rather than dead, this would be his second act. Perhaps, yes. Given the way Scarface is presented in such brutality, it's hard to imagine an end for him other than complete annihilation. 
with Carlito, the counselor in prison told him that he can't sprint all the way. He has to pace himself. Now, he says he learned you don't get reformed. You just run out of steam. I think maybe he's even more reflective than that. But he's trying to get out of this criminal way. And I don't know if Tony could ever have that awareness. I don't think it was just simply prison that made Carlito aware of another way. Perhaps he had that degree of reflectiveness before then. On the other hand, how much has Carlito left behind his criminal ways despite his claims of being reformed is something also to consider. Yeah, so unlike Scarface, he is not only self-reflective, he's very ambiguous. You have to think through quite a lot of what he says to figure out what's right with him, what's wrong with him, in what ways has he transformed. And the Palma encourages you to reflect on him by withholding anything about his previous life. All you mm -hmm. have are opinions, stories, his reputation, and his own stories about his past. This is a great moment to give you a brief overview of the plot. Before we get into the incredible complexity of the characterization, we should show you just how simple the story itself is. The movie starts with Carlito being released from jail on a technicality. The year is 1975, the scene is the Bronx. A cousin of his quickly gets him involved in a gunfight as a drug deal goes bad. Carlito manages to escape, and with a lot of money, and he uses it to buy into Club Paraiso. At Club Paradise, he sets up ownership, and he sets in motion a plan to make enough money to fund a retirement for himself, away from crime-ridden Bronx. He at the same time tries to win back his old girlfriend, Gail. He wants her to run away with him when the time comes. But as the plot unfolds, because of his own choices and because of his friend and lawyer, Dave Kleinfeld, who helped him get out of jail, he gets involved in a murder of an Italian mobster and the subsequent war with that family. And this leads to the tragic ending of Carlito. And you see how this past ends up becoming a jumping board, sometimes a millstone around his neck. Mm -hmm. It has a very strange relationship to your intention of making something of yourself. Carlito says both that he was a self-made man and also wants to be a self-made man in the sense of being another man than the man he made himself the first time around. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And that brings up this all-American problem of being a self-made man. It's just that his ability for reflection is not the same as wisdom by any stretch of the imagination. His mm -hmm. intellectual sophistication does not print any recipes for success. And that brings us to this other cinematic fact. Carlito's Way is almost an obvious uh, redo of Billy Wilder's Sunset Boulevard. Yeah, now that's that, right. Now, that was a movie about Hollywood, and this one is a movie about America without Hollywood. But they both start with this incredibly moralistic structure of a man who is a protagonist, but starts dead. You know what he's getting. At the movies, we say to ourselves with our sense of poetic justice, everybody gets what they deserve. Not in reality, but in, at the movies, everybody gets what they deserve. Well, you know what right. these protagonists get. And then the thinking is, do they deserve this? And how much can we sympathize with men who deserve death? The movie cinematically suggests to you that this is not merely a matter of making sense of somebody's life. It's also a matter of making sense of somebody's death. How did he get there? This is the completeness that movies try to teach you about. In life, there's way too much accident for things to be complete and therefore accessible to clear thinking. But in our stories, we do create a kind of fictitious completeness. There's a beginning and the end. Now, when the beginning is the end, you know exactly where this is headed, and you can say, okay, this is all there is, and now this has to come together and make sense in some way. 
the audience is under a certain moral burden to justify what is happening to this character. Yeah, the whole movie, if you compare it to Sunset Boulevard, there you have the William Holden character already dead, face down in the pool, and yet somehow able to recount the events that led him. Here we have the shooting and Carlito being crated away on the gurney to the ambulance. Dying, not dead just yet, but that leads him to his reflections. And he's doing this voiceover at the beginning, which is the end, being carried out on the gurney. It feels like just yesterday I got out of the joint and stood up in front of the judge and told him what was who. We go straight from there to the flashback to the court where the judge unfortunately has to release Carlito. That what was who is a line that sticks with me. This is how Carlito views it. And then just to carry this over, how he's trying to understand himself towards the middle of the movie where he is with Gail, his former girlfriend, and she's asking him about his past. Did he kill people? Was he really the criminal that they said that he was? And he has this long justification as to why he might have had to kill people. He says, you do what you have to do to survive. You just end up where you are. Of course, this leads to the end of the movie where he is shot. He has these kinds of justifications for himself as he's reflecting on his whole life as he's dying. And he does indeed die at the end, his eyes shut. As he's being carried out on the gurney, of course, he's looking at this travel poster for somewhere in the Caribbean, an orangish hue with a sunset on a palm-covered beach. It says, Return to Paradise. And as he's looking at that, the movie becomes a moving picture, a screen where he's watching his girlfriend, Gail, and their now-born son dancing on the beach. So he's not even a part of that wholeness that he sees for himself. To make a comparison to Scarface, that poster, if you look at its composition and its colors and you watch Scarface, uh, Tony Montana's boss has an office with a wallpaper that has the same paradise motif. And so there, by way of contrast, Tony Montana and Scarface, as he's rising up, sees that beach and connects it to Frank, who Tony wishes to supplant to become the drug kingpin. Here with Carlito at the end, that view becomes something outside of the story, outside of something that he can be involved in. That's a great mention of the interesting details of the beginning and the ending. Now, Al Pacino does his Carlito role with a strange accent that may just be what Puerto Ricans sounded like in the 70s when the (laughs) movie is set, but he never makes mistakes of idiom saying he told the judge... I believe it's what was who. It's probably (laughs) significant. You're right about his justifications. He tends in opposite directions. Sometimes he says that he is a creature of his circumstances. You do what you gotta do. Mm-hmm. The story he tells Gail is about how he was set upon. Things just turned out that way. If there was any ill will, it was on the part of other people who forced him into violence. Mm-hmm. And that's one account of his innocence. And the price he pays for asserting that innocence is to say that he has no power in his own life. That he is not his own man. He is just what circumstances made of him. But he also tends in another direction, especially when he sees a young version of himself, Benny Blanco from the Bronx, played very well by John Leguizamo. (laughs) There he tends to assert that he is nothing like that young guy, because he is his own man, and he is a legend, and he used to do things of great importance. His show of power is supposed to suggest that he is actually not at all determined by circumstances, that he made himself. That's the distinction between the who and the what. Is he self-determined or is he, on the other hand, a mere creature of circumstances? He tries to put them together in some way. Yeah, that's right. The what is his self-excuse 
being determined by circumstances out of his control. And he relies upon this even towards the end where his final voiceover is somebody is pulling me down. And and of course, also, like you mentioned, his rise to be a drug kingpin. He can't quite get over his pride, his ability to become, as Benny Blanco calls him, the J.P. Morgan of smack. This is something that he takes a lot of pride in and he refers to himself as a legend. And of course, he has this plan to escape. Sure, he just wishes to escape to sell rental cars in the Bahamas, where he will no longer be a gangster and won't be subject to being shot. And it's a return or movement to just living as a private man in a tourist trap, albeit a beautiful tourist trap. And throughout, you can even calculate his plan and the amount of money he needs. $75,000. Of course, he just comes upon $30,000 through a botched drug deal that he claims on the one hand, he just was dragged into because he was with his nephew, who, since he had been in prison, had gotten involved in the drug trade. And so he goes with his nephew on this drug deal that gets botched. The deal gone wrong itself shows this ambiguity of the what and the who. On the one hand, he makes it sound like this is something he is dragged into by his nephew, and he has a certain feeling of obligation to protect his nephew. But on the other hand, he wants to go into this drug deal and have everybody recognize him as Carlito, the legend. When he gets in there, they all say, oh yeah, I remember you. You were the legend. You guys were kingpins. This flatters him. There's still this kind of who-ness of the plan and the ambition, the self-made man. Of course, his ambition now is just to acquire the $75,000 to become a private man in paradise, selling rental cars. Everybody, they laugh at him. They think this is just absurd and that it would never work out for him. Throughout, there's that ambiguity of his excuses of being subject to others' opinions and circumstances outside of his control, and yet his pride and his prior ambition and acquiring status and currently his abilities to escape that all. Yeah, I think we can just look at the phrases he's mixing up to bring this out even more clearly. To show somebody what's what means to impose your will, but by way of necessity, Mm -hmm. to say what is the case. Now, to be in a who's who is about being important, unlike everybody else, that is to say. And Mm -hmm. so you see here necessity and the desire to distinguish oneself come together, and they're just really hard to put together, actually. The more you believe in necessity, the less there is any choice, and that just goes against the pride of distinguishing oneself, which implies a certain kind of freedom. The more, however, you insist on distinguishing yourself and your own freedom to do so, and your powers to do so, the less is it all going to add up or make sense or be justifiable, because without necessity things don't make sense. So there is just a conflict between rationality and freedom. This is the highest theme of Carlito's way. Just Mm -hmm. like you point out, Carlito has a way. Now that is the way of the gangster. Mm -hmm. And it's important to see what a great guy this is. He has a way. Most of us don't have a way. That's right. (laughs) The way of Carlito names a way of life. Now, he himself looks up to somebody beyond him, so to speak. Like so many gangsters, he wants to be respectable. He dresses well and is flattered by being compared to J.P. Morgan, the great financier, who Mm. was many things, by the way, but not a robber baron. He was Mm. a blue blood, if anything. And of course, his name still stands on institutions. You can see the kind of ambition that's tied up with respectability in the case of somebody like Carlito. But nevertheless, it's not the way of J.P. Morgan. It's Carlito's way. That's right. Because it's so much manlier. And of course he wants to put his name on his way, if at all possible, because his manliness is constitutive to who he is. But on the other hand, there is this other matter that Carlito also has a dream. He dreams of paradise. 
I think you mentioned about the ending, the sign that so ironically says return to paradise to a child brought up in hell. Mm-hmm. The only young men we see are murderers and murdered. But return to paradise, I believe, is supposed to suggest that we all have this in ourselves, a beatific vision, if you want to put it that way. Mm-hmm. And of course, his dream turns out to be deferred to his child. Maybe his child will live in paradise. The the father Mm -hmm. cannot escape his sins. But maybe the child could benefit by those sins without having to pay for them. I believe at the end he only gets about 50,000 of his needed 75,000. But he gives them to Gail. He speaks of his child as perhaps a new and improved Carlito. You're right. I think there is something pointing towards this idea of paradise within us all that he sees he cannot enter into. Yep, and he has this great joke in his concluding monologue when he talks about his child. He talks about himself as the last of the Mohicans. He's not yeah. a Mohican, he's a Puerto Rican, but the movie was out and I guess the book is famous and it also has to do with the end of a way of life and a certain kind of nobility that's super violent, so you can kind of see the connection. But he also says, maybe not, maybe the child will carry on something about him, not his way of life, hopefully. There you see what's wrong with Carlito, his way, the way of the gangster, and his dream, paradise, just do not match up. Now he wants to say that the way is a way to the dream, that the relation there is between the means and the end that those means are supposed to secure. And the Palma shows you that they don't match up. Both the way and the dream are present in the man Carlito, but they are not present in the world, both of them. Mm -hmm. One of them is a reality he can never quite size up properly. He ends up being swallowed by his reputation. The name Carlito ends up taking over the living being Carlito, both in his own action and in the world around him. He cannot escape it. But the dream is only these images you see at various points in the movie. They never have the status of reality. Mm -hmm. And so this brings up this incredibly philosophical theme that on the one hand you have to deal with reputation, with opinions, with what people say and think about you, and how that leads to actions, including actions you would not want to happen to you. And on the other hand, the image, which is what drives you, at least to some extent. Yeah, in order to achieve, if he were able to achieve some kind of reality to this image, he has to take actions that obviously contradict that. When he is trying to persuade his girlfriend Gail to take the train with him down to Miami and then they'll move to the Bahamas and they can escape all of this, he's telling her, we have to run after the dream now. But this is going to involve certain actions that contradict this very notion of the dream. His reputation has it, and he himself is burdened by this reputation as this violent gangster to enter into the dream he has to do things that the dream doesn't recognize as being legitimate that of course is also a great theme of political philosophy do evil actions bring about happiness is there any association for a common good that doesn't have a violent beginning these things are worked through because at some level carlito has to confront his own past and his own failed empire as a kingpin as you put it as the jp morgan of smack (laughs) he had the ambitions He wasn't just beating people up, killing or selling drugs or trying to get ahead in life. That is the part that he's most silent about. That is the part about himself that he now conceals. He's still flattered. He still wants at some level to be thought of as that man and to be respected for it. He wants to be a living legend, not understanding that legends by their nature have to be dead. Yeah, right. You know, if you look back to his past and how he became Carlito, and we think of all the violence that the gangster had to do to achieve his status, when he sees Benny Blanco from the Bronx and he says, that's not me, 
that never was me. So he wants to deny those lower aspects, but he sees a code. So his attachment to his lawyer, Davy Kleinfeld, to a system in a jam, the lawyer did some criminal action, and now Carlito feels obligated to him. That's part of his code. Davy is his friend, and that's who he is, and so he has to help out. So this has a certain honor among thieves, as opposed to just simply brutality. Yeah, so that should be a kind of justification. Honor is somewhere in between necessity and freedom. He wouldn't have done the things he wants to call honorable hadn't he had to. But necessity can at best excuse things, not beautify them. Honor gets its beautification from its relationship to freedom. Because what he did together with the man showed great power, great enterprise, and that's part of human freedom. His attachment to these people is both necessary for his self-respect and dooms him in a way that is obvious to his girlfriend Gail, who has no love, no respect for them, no connection to them, and really no connection to the violent part of his life. She can criticize him expertly without realizing that he's part of that. She wants to say that where he lived and what he did is essentially alien to him. And you can Mm -hmm. see why he loves her for it. Mm -hmm. He does want to be seen also in this other way, as possibly clean. Someone who can be taken out of the river of blood he has created. And I think he must have had some kind of awareness of that even prior to his conviction and sentencing to prison because Gail, his girlfriend, calls him Charlie. So he presents himself as Charlie, or had presented himself as Charlie, even though everybody else knows him as Carlito. The anglicization of it, I don't know what's going on there, but in his mind, this is a person who is not stuck in the river of blood, as you put it. Carlito literally translates as Charlie, but diminutive. But Mm -hmm. Carlito is a name of pride, of a legend. Charlie is a nickname. Charlie is a name of affection in the case of Gale. Mm -hmm. It's the tame version of Carlito, if you will. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But it also has, as you pointed out, this other great American tension within it. Has this guy, in chasing after a white girl, abandoned his Puerto Rican roots and his way of life? She's the only Anglo in his life, just like his lawyer, who is a Jew, is the only other white person, or at any rate more American, being that Mm -hmm. he's himself an immigrant or child of immigrants living in a very secluded part of America. Just like his image, the younger him, Benny Blanco from the Bronx, who is always Benny Blanco from the Bronx, whether he (laughs) calls himself that or other people. Now, partly that's because of his pride, partly because he has this attachment to a very small borrower. The Bronx, of course, was the most ethnically diverse of the boroughs, but still it's a fairly small place, and nobody in America identifies himself that way. It's, Mm -hmm. at some level, the Americanization of a stranger, and the more it's perpetuated, the less it turns out to be Americanization. Americans are placeless in America. Mm -hmm. But Mm -hmm. so also with Carlito, his Americanization is woefully incomplete. And if his dream is tied up with the American dream, being self-made and ending up in some way happy in an individualistic way, then it's never going to work out for him. And it never would have worked out for him simply because of his social situation. He could have had some kind of happiness, some kind of decent life as well. These are not precluded. What is precluded for him is this kind of rise to fame that should lead him to paradise. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Of course, no more than anybody else is he able to live with that disappointment or with that limitation. We don't know how he started murdering or how he ended up the way he did. 
but the story he tells does imply certain things. His justification to Gale is that he was going out to look at the ducks in Central Park. Yeah, so he wanted to be in Midtown Manhattan. Yes, yes. Back when America was, you know, post-war success and his Desired. Manhattan fantasy. Uh-huh, had to seek a certain kind of Manhattan respectability. So Carlito was on his way to Manhattan, where people can have fun in the park. It's all innocent, but it's all well-heeled. But somebody stopped him, another gang. He passed mm -hmm. on their turf. You see, there's somebody getting in the way. There's somebody he has to get past or get over. And that's where the violence started. He doesn't give the details, except that he learned two things. First of all, you have to be careful about these dangers. And second of all, you have to be a killer. He used to carry a knife around, as all young men do. <laughs> but <laughs> then he decided to stop bringing a knife to a gunfight. And that mm -hmm. means that on his way to Manhattan and respectability and pleasure, what he learned was that you gotta kill people. You gotta get bloody. You have to be armed. The focus of his mind shifted from the purpose he wanted to achieve to the obstacles getting in the way or the means he would need to deal with mm -hmm. uh, those obstacles. And that's what is definitive of Carlito's way. There's some kind of desire for individual happiness, freedom. He was not with a gang of his own. He was not with his fellow Puerto Ricans. He was alone. Mm -hmm. It was individualistic happiness that he was looking for. That was the American dream for him. And instead he turned to this other variety of individualism a manliness of heroic violence and this is not entirely loneliness because he does have a strict friendship with Dave Kleinfeld the lawyer yes and the first time we see them together in court Dave gets him out of jail and Carlito makes a speech on his own that hides that Dave was in any way tied up with this he wants to be left out of jail because it's the right thing to do. He's basically giving his mocking version of MLK's I have a dream speech there. That's right. That's right. And he's dressed so to the nines. He wants to put on the most beautiful view of himself and to deny that he needs anybody, basically. But in fact, it's the lawyer who got him out on a technicality, as the judge very matter-of-factly tells you. And that That's shows right. you that even in that relationship, Carlito's insistence on his own nobility blinds him and is part of his attempt to blind others to the real means that secure his way of life. And at the end, when Kleinfeld goes insane in imitation of Carlito and Scarface and so forth, he says this. He's angry with Carlito because Carlito is always talking about honor and friendship and the code, whereas in fact none of that ever helped him in his time of need. It was a lawyer who took every dirty trick he could think of and used it to get him out of jail in five rather than 30 years. That's right. And so Carlito is just not able to acknowledge the very necessities that he spent all his life dealing with on the way to this ever-deferred dream of paradise, whether it's Bahamas or Central Park in Manhattan. Yeah, so if you think of Central Park, this the individual at peace, pursuing ordinary pleasures, individualistic, typical middle-class understanding. And in a way, he wants to see himself as the one who can acquire it on his own, which blinds him to the role of others to help him get to where he is. And that offends his sense of his honor, his respectability, his own manliness, his own strength, his own intelligence. Yep, Carlito okay. is not ungrateful or contemptuous toward his friend. Dave. As soon as he gets out of jail, they go out to a party, drinking, into the small hours of the morning, 
Next to the two of them you see these girls they've taken out, who are of no importance to them, they're just girls, young, pretty, dressed in a flamboyant manner, but the two men utterly ignore them. Mm -hmm. They only care about each other because of their long deferred reunion. And that suggests he does have a potential for friendship, and that his speaking about honor is not calculated, and it's not entirely self-deluded either. Yeah, at least there is a sense of gratitude and affection for Davy and respect. And yet, as the story progresses, we find out that in the five years that Carlito has been gone, David has been involved in activities that have pushed him over the line from simply being a lawyer into the gangster world himself. And Carlito, I'm not so sure he's aware of that. I don't think it's delusion on his part, because I think prior to that, there obviously was a sense of friendship. That's one of the things at the beginning where De Palma surely is signaling that there is a problem here, because when they have the two girls, they're at the nightclub celebrating after Carlito's release. Carlito and David Kleinfeld, they're out on the dance floor dancing, and we have kind of a perfect split screen. Carlito on one side dancing with one of the girls, and David on the other side dancing with one of the girls, and yet they're kind of opposed to each other or at odds. And in this scene at the nightclub, that's when we first hear of Carlito's plan. Uh, that he's out of the criminal business and David, his friend, laughs at him. Although he doesn't tell him, don't do it either. He just doesn't think it's going to happen. But I think Carlito does have a capacity to, or a desire to have a kind of friendship with David. And there is a kind of a respect and love there. Yep. And the, as you pointed out, there is from the beginning a tension here between who they are at work. That requires a division of labor. One's the gangster, the other's the lawyer. They help each other out and they prosper together, ostensibly on two different sides of the law, but actually they're just as criminal. One of them is mm -hmm. just cannier and the other one is just manlier. Mm -hmm. And so long as they need each other, it's not exactly a matter of who's superior. But of course, if Carlito wants to get out of the game, he doesn't need Dave anymore, and Dave doesn't have a client anymore. Then their That's friendship right. would really be tested, and indeed, Dave can't even conceive of that and doesn't care about it at all. Well, and that's David is dependent on Carlito, because I think it was his representation of Carlito that led him to future clients, the Tagliolucci family in particular, that gets him into trouble. So other criminal organizations or individuals turn to Kleinfeld as their representation as well. Yep, Carlito does mention that he brought great business to Dave. And of course, wherever there is a matter of mutual advantage that turns out not to be entirely so mutual, there's a question about how real the friendship is. Mm -hmm. Would it endure if it were not mutually beneficial? The other thing, however, is a question about man love. In that scene, when they party together, Carlito says, if you were abroad, I'd marry you. Yes. <laughs> now, of course, that's partly a suggestion that they need each other that they make a business partnership, which might as well be domestic. But part of it is as obvious as their focus on each other rather than those women. The way of Carlito does require this kind of intense love between men, because without it, it collapses into utter brutality. And the failure of their partnership does announce the catastrophe that will engulf the both of them. That's right. I think that love between men, and in particular between Carlito and Kleinfeld, that once again, that you see if you have the dancing scene where they're split on separate sides and the two women on the screen make the outer pair as Carlito and Davy are the inner pair, but they're dancing with the women, not with each other. 
in the scene where Carlito says, I would marry you, they're sitting at the bar and Carlito and Davey are having their conversation next to each other and the two girls are busy looking in their mirror, doing their makeup and so on, completely ignored and distracted. The cinematography yeah, and the mise-en-scene do tend to suggest important themes like we're trying to bring out here. That's right. Palma is very coherent about these things. And so also many scenes speak to each other. Like later in the movie, before the ultimate catastrophe, Carlito and Dave and their respective girls, who are now turning into a kind of bourgeois double date, go to the Copacabana. It's a great <clears throat> club, hard to get in, very exclusive, but also it's a double date. Carlito throughout the story has in encouraged Dave to go with this girl who works at his club, Steph. Now they're double dating. He is with Gail, finally, for the first time he dances with her, which he had been dreaming about from the beginning. Dave is also there with Steph, and that should mean that they're friends, and uh, although they have moved from this kind of exclusive attachment to each other, they've reached a more stable and happier partnership, but that turns out to be a catastrophe, because for well, erotic reasons, what has happened yeah. in between is that an erotic catastrophe has unfolded in the center of the movie that the Palm orchestrates expertly, and maybe we'll get to talk about it a bit later. The other thing that happens in that scene is that this is the Copacabana and they get in trouble with some Italian mobsters. Now, I believe that that is a joke about Martin Scorsese's Goodfellas and mm. about the two different portrayals of gangsters there. Scorsese is very slick with the movie making and with his gangsters, but he portrays not one human relationship that is as important as the ones that Brian De Palma can orchestrate. Mm -hmm. I think so. Yeah, that could very well be. It is as if upon relationships, but then that Copacabana scene is, is definitely a turning point. Carlito has this love for Davey, but then he wants to remind us David's success as a lawyer with his clients, his future clients, is dependent upon Carlito. And in a way, Carlito farms out Ingrid, who was a waitress at the club that Carlito was managing. Davey gives Carlito the job to manage the club paradise, but then Carlito, as the manager, gives Davey the girl, who, by the way, happens to be Benny Blanco from the Bronx's girl. And yet Carlito belittles it. Dave's having sex with the girl in the bathroom, and the waiter comes and complains and Dave returns to the table at the nightclub. This is prior to the Copacabana nightclub scene. And Carlito makes a joke that Davey's faster than a speeding bullet, which has several meanings, obviously. Bullets show up. And earlier, Carlito told Davey that bullet gonna kill him. And now we see he's faster than a speeding bullet. The point being here, Carlito wants to assert a certain degree of dominance over David. And then that comes to a head at the Copacabana because when we have the Italian gangster that David calls a goomba, the Italian gangster begins dancing with Gale after Carlito sits down and Carlito claims not to feel any jealousy about this. He's just admiring her dancing. But David wants Carlito to get angry and defend his girlfriend's honor. Instead, what Carlito does is he eggs Davy on to make a scene, which almost leads to a catastrophe. David begins to attack and criticize and defend Gale against this Italian gangster. Yep. And those two scenes with Carlito and Dave in different clubs show what has happened to Carlito. As you pointed out, his first joke about Davy's sexual prowess or lack thereof is contemptuous, shows that he's still the man in charge, and of course he's in his own club. Mm -hmm. But something else has changed in between. Dave doesn't answer at this point, whereas later at the Copacabana, Dave keeps saying angrier and more disrespectful things of Carlito. He's no longer playing second fiddle. And on the mm -hmm. other hand, Carlito changes his humor. He sarcastically tells Dave, 
slave to pick a fight with the Italian mobsters, which he never intended or never saw coming, but that sort of humor is unmanly. Carlito was a guy who let you know what he thought of you and told you what to do as well. He has changed in between, just like he's not man enough to dance with Gail except for one dance, he's not man enough to keep this guy under control either. His mortality is catching up with him. Yes. Rather than directly confront the Italian mobster, he indirectly fuels David's anger and rage at mobsters in general. His clients who think that they can tell David Kleinfeld what to do. So Carlito stokes that. That indirection as a way to even satisfy his own jealousy of Gail dancing with the mobster is unmanly. He tells us that he's sitting the dance out because he's old and he's tired. Yup, that's the other problem with Carlito, that he's running on fairly limited resources that he's not aware of. His claim about being in control, as we've shown both in relationship to his friend and in relationship to the girl whom he promises that they're getting out, is really unfounded. He hasn't thought through the means necessary to achieve his stated end. The more he makes promises to both of them, the more he gets into trouble. But there is a third element here, who Carlito is as a ruler. He turns out to be betrayed by his men. He turns out to know that if he gets into a fight with some young, angry, tough guy like Benny Blanco from the Bronx, he should have the man killed. Like Teddy Roosevelt, he knows that peace with insult is a very bad policy. You should talk softly and carry a big stick. Like Machiavelli, he knows very well that you should either caress your enemies or exterminate them. But nothing in between will do. And yet he has grown soft, he has grown human, he doesn't want to be a murderer anymore. Mm-hmm. That's a pivotal scene. When he lets Benny Blanco from the Bronx go, obviously it's Benny that shoots him at the beginning at the end. And of course Pachanga, his right-hand man from back in the barrio, back in the earlier days, who's now working as his right-hand man at his club he's managing, Pachanga, I think, changes his opinion about Carlito. He sees that Carlito has gone soft, and we find out later that Pachanga has been betraying Carlito as he's starting to work with Benny Blanco. Yep, that shows the actual basis of the rule by which Carlito is both in charge of the club and of his men, and also removed from them above. It is merely fear that gets in the way of equality. And when it turns out that they're not afraid of him anymore because he has stopped terrorizing them, his form of rule collapses without him even noticing it or without them bringing notice. It just disappears. And his last scene in his club is him running around trying to save his life and mm-hmm. trying to get his money. His kingdom has gone to hell. His paradise is now supposed to become his tomb. And on the other hand, the meaning of the legend is coming back to bite him. Carlito is both feared and because he is so fearful, someone to imitate. Benny Blanco from the Bronx got his ideas like so many other people, maybe Carlito's cousin who dies in the beginning, from Mm -hmm. watching Carlito. Not everybody who looks at him wants to obey, and all the ones who obey only obey conditionally. Many of them want to get something out of him, and a few of them want to imitate, and therefore to replace him. And in this way, his legend is going to get him killed just because of what it is. Yeah, that's connected to his getting softer. But then that, of course, contradicts his whole dream. So he's conflicted. How can he get out without being, as you pointed, either exterminate or caress? 
he does not seem to want to do either. Yep, he's not happy enough in his private life to be reasonable, and he is not committed to abandoning private life enough to be fully unreasonable. He knows that he's doing wrong, even as he does it with Benny Blanco from the Bronx. It is his erotic frustration. He doesn't have Gail, whereas his friend David now does have a girl. That's mm-hmm. what gets him to deny to Benny Blanco his own girl, mm-hmm. who is now David's girl. In not having her, he cannot be calm and reasonable as he tries to be later when he does have her at the Copacabana, where he diffuses a conflict with a mobster instead of stirring it mm-hmm. on like he had done before. He cannot be gentle enough, he cannot be brutal enough either. He's caught, yes. as it were, between Davy and Gale, and that's a recipe for tragedy. Yes, it is. There's, of course, the pivotal scene with Gale where he recognizes the dilemma and decides that, though, he has to go with David to help him break out Tony T from the prison barge. Much to Gale's consternation, and, of course, she claims then it's all broken off, it's over. Of course, we find out later that she's pregnant with Carlito's child. At that point, he's going to go, but, of course, he doesn't know that... Rather than just simply break out Tony T, Davy, to save his own skin, is going to kill Tony T and Tony T's son because he had already stolen a million dollars from these guys. Yep, unlike Gail, Carlito is blind to who his friend really is because mm-hmm. he desperately needs to believe that honor works out even when it manifestly doesn't. He just cannot live with himself on any other basis and there's no living with himself on that basis because he too will be betrayed and dragged into a catastrophe whether he likes it or not. Mm-hmm. His intent between his friend and the way of life that that represented and on the other hand the woman he loves and the way of life that represented what makes Carlito so interesting and if not quite endearing then at any rate understandable and you can see why maybe lower class people are more interesting for drama because the passions are stronger and the idealism or the taking of an image and trying to turn it into a way of life is stronger especially on the boundaries of the law. Certain facts about American psychology and society are revealed there that wouldn't be revealed in safer, more constrained, more low-obedient, more compliant Mm -hmm. social situations. So we don't really see any example of ability to reconcile those two demands. And really, Gale is the only alternative outside of the manly world of crime and drugs and murder and or using the law to get the criminals exonerated. This is a tension, you could say, American society, many people feel, nonetheless, rather than show a reconciliation of it, it's the basis of a tragedy. Yep, that's another sign of uh, De Palma's greatness as a director. He too has figured out that in our modern, democratic, liberal, rights-based, sort of Christian society, we do not tolerate tragedies anymore. The only man who gets a tragedy, therefore, must be a villain. And he uses this to bring out the interesting things in human beings who would otherwise be completely neglected because they Mm -hmm. don't fit the usual story that gets a happy ending. Yes, tragedy can't be shown in the man who has found a family and or a career that can be connected to protecting and living within the context of a family, which is largely going to be private life, but also ordinary and boring. Yep, just like ordinary can feel boring and constraining. It also intellectually and morally places important burdens on storytelling. America will not tolerate that in a way that we can see in the news every day and on the lips of everyone. Anybody dying in any situation in America is a tragedy. (laughs) That's right. Or anybody in middle class America, at least. Or a a bus accident Mm -hmm. is a tragedy. (laughs) (laughs) That shows you with what kinds of fears people live and why they are in certain ways electrified, fascinated by these kinds of fearless characters. So if you want to see 
see how tragedy could work in a middle-class situation, we go back to what you mentioned before, Brian De Palma's carry. Mm -hmm. Horror is going to do it. If you want to see the problem of evil, of sin coming up, if you want to see that suburban life is not simply paradise, well, then you're going to have to go way beyond tragedy to get even some attention, to get a rise out of people. You're going to have to do horror. That's right. You have to show that there's something other than just what on the surface. You always have to point towards something extraordinary. Uh, exactly. Because at least the surface of bourgeois life excludes that possibility for evil in the case of horror or any kind of a tragic tension between ways, Carlito's ways, that we see manifested in this movie. And of course this is not a criticism of the bourgeoisie. No. Carlito at some point is supposed to teach you that middle class life is preferable. That if you <laughs> want to become a legend, what you're really asking for is a tragic ending. That's so right. It's a kind of temptation at least for the young and passionate, but it's not ultimately sound. And it's absolutely not going to be conducive for the good that a bourgeois life provides. In fact, it's antithetical to it. There's a real tension there that uh, I'm not sure De Palma thinks can be reconciled and rather just uh, something that has to be lived through in a way. Yep. Maybe and trying I... to give each its due in some way, but having to be endured. Yeah. To a large extent, it seems like De Palma's cinema is about saying there are still dark passions in the soul. There is still evil in the world. But if we are to confront it in any way that's not a horror, we had better try and learn about it in unusual circumstances. They're close mm -hmm. enough to us so that we understand and are interested. They're far enough from us so that we don't feel threatened mm -hmm. or indicted. Yeah, we, the criminal underworld. <laughs> it lives out the passions of America. That's an important complement to the America that is visible, public, official. If you do the comparison with Scarface 2, the fascination that the audience has had over the years with Scarface compared to Carlito's way, which, while it does have some acclaim, Scarface, especially in gangster rap, just took on a life of its own as a fantasy world that shows that attraction because our lives are so boring or mundane or can appear to be that way, at least when confronted with those kinds of tragic choices. So there is that attraction. And I guess that maybe that explains the self-reflectiveness of Carlito's way and the drawing much more to the center, this tragic tension between becoming a legend and yet seeking to be a private man living in a family. That just doesn't exist in Scarface. Yeah. You could think of Carlitos Way as an improved version, a more reflective version, but indeed you lose some of the fame. This has always been a problem with tragedy. The tragic poet tries to warn you against doing crazy things that seem right, tries to warn you against the kind of people who take one principle and run with it beyond any human limits. But inevitably, tragic heroes are admired and in crazy right. ways imitated. They do set up trends and fashions. People still like Romeo and Juliet were crazy kids. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. And you can't take it out of people. Why do suburban kids listen to gangster rap? That's There's right. nothing in their lives that speaks to their passions. Right. Well, exactly. And that passion is obviously very powerful. The draw that gangster rap has, or at least had in the past, to suburban middle-class kids. Of course, the problem here is that official America doesn't want to recognize these passions, and maybe you could try to medicate it out of the kids or do some counseling, as yeah. though it's a sickness in a boy to get angry and feisty. It's part of who he is. It couldn't 
be otherwise. But at the same time, this also puts a great burden on the shoulders of people like the Palma. You'll make yourself hated if you talk about these things. Yes, for sure. And he's always in need of rehabilitation, but it's worthwhile because he's so thoughtful about how these passions play out in ways that we can recognize and think through without feeling ourselves under attack morally or psychologically. That's right. If you go back to what we were discussing at the beginning, I don't think there is this extreme anti-Americanism, including even of a kind of a middle class or bourgeois way of life, of a middle class respectability in the context of family and certain kind of career and ordinary citizenship. It's hard, at least from De Palma's point of view, to draw out these themes of tragedy or of evil by presenting them so he doesn't present those. But I don't get the sense that he thinks that these things in themselves are not worthy of living and that they don't provide, they do, I think he thinks, provide certain kinds of goods. Yeah, they're certainly part of a recognizable and American experience, and that comes with a certain kind of interest and dignity. So this, I think, can bring us to the most disrespectable part of the movie, what Carlitos Way has to say about eroticism. I'll introduce this with one thing that we've been silent on so far. Carlito doesn't talk about his jail life almost at all, but you do learn a couple of things. One of them is that he never ratted out former associates, yes. And he never talked to Gail the five years he was Mm -hmm. in jail. He wanted to be cut off from the world because he could no longer be himself. He cannot tolerate Mm. other people getting to see him in that state. He doesn't want to be a caged animal. He says he just got in shape. That's a nice way of saying that he was a lot of angry and there was a lot of pain. Mm -hmm. Getting out of jail, he's trapped in this situation where he wants to put everything behind him. He wants another life. But at the same time, he wants to pretend that nothing has changed. That those five years can be simply cancelled. And this brings us to the discussion of eroticism. The one true thing in his life is his love for Gail. And he, in searching her out, says you want someone to recognize your face. You want to see somebody to who saw you as before. Yes, he wants all of this not to have happened, but in a specific way in his relationship with Gail, because he is seized by the beautiful. He is a great spectator of beauty. He is not actually as acquisitive or as obsessed with consuming or taking over as he might seem as a gangster. You mentioned the great scene when he looks at Gail. Sure, well, he is looking at Gail from the rooftop. He knows that Gail had this dream to be a dancer, and he somehow knows that she is taking ballet lessons in some studio in New York, and rather than go and introduce himself, he climbs on the roof and views her from afar as she's practicing some ballet dance. So he's viewing her. And this is a very beautiful scene as opposed to him trying to control it. He is just taken in by his vision he had in his mind of Gail in the five years he was in prison. Yeah, so this is the first time he sees her in the movie and he's at his most pathetic with the trash can lid for an umbrella. It's not exactly that he's innocent but it does seem that for a moment what will doom him, what must doom him, he's free of it for a spell, and she's there doing her ballet routine, and you get the sense that for once he actually gets what he wanted. This is what he was looking for. Mm -hmm. And that's also tied up with the next scene when he follows her down the street and she calls him Charlie when finally she recognizes him. And Mm -hmm. they part ways because she doesn't want him back in her life, she thinks. He's both loving and patient and you don't get a sense at all that their relationship has anything to do with him being a murderer. He's powerless again. That is the scene when they go to the coffee shop. This is where Carlito tells her his ambition to go and become a rental car guy. He 
also tells her what he learned. He had run out of steam, but the counselor told him that he can't sprint all the way. So his energy, his ambition is waning, and so he's a bit diminished there. Does he think that this would be appealing to Gail? It's also where he tells her the reason why he refused her visits. He couldn't imagine her outside while he was inside, and he certainly didn't want her to see him. Because as you said, he doesn't want anything to do with the idea that he was a caged animal. Yeah, there is this other thing that he does have to confront that he was inside and she was outside had to go on with her life and he does meet her later at the strip club yeah we hear about gail when a former associate of his laline who is now bound to a wheelchair because he got gunned down who ran some brothel back in the day and was a greeter and a very sophisticated suave individual laline visits carlito at his club is wearing a wire he's agreed to do this because the prosecutors if they can get some goods on carlito to put him back in jail so there's a betrayal there but in this conversation we find out that laline has seen gail he was at a strip club although he just says he saw her dancing at a club and carlito of course takes note of that and then the next we hear of this is carlito now is downtown and he walks in to the club probably knew as he was in the neighborhood that this was a strip club and lo and behold there's gail dancing as a stripper it's ironically yes. on 40th and broadway she always wanted to end up on broadway <laughs> yes. he is shocked for a moment when he sees her almost naked and she for a moment hides her breasts in a kind of veil but then she goes on with her routine and then they sit down at the table and talk and she's mm-hmm. angry with how judgmental he is who is nothing but the murderer and the thief mm-hmm. and this should be them bringing out the worst in each other their moral accusations used to ruin their lives but it doesn't turn out that way he's out of steam as he had said he is no longer as angry as he must have been as a murderer yes you have both these indignant reactions on gail's part as she says she refuses to be judged by a murderer for her new dancing and you could think that this could make them both so indignant as to have nothing to do with each other but she does leave that scene letting him know that he can come visit her if uh, if it's a surprise and so he takes her up on that offer later on that's their next scene together and there you see the other side of having run out of steam the truth is that murdering and the drugs aside gail liked him because he was a violent man by nature yes that's the strangest thing in an strange movie well she demands that he bust her door down to break in a fantasy rape that she wishes carlito to perform for her yep that's the most de palma sequence in the entire de palma movie you mm-hmm. see him in a joke about the Stanley Kubrick movie The Shining you see his Mm -hmm. head through the door that's barely open because of the chain and then you see her in the mirror stripping for his viewing pleasure and so that she can enjoy his torture she is daring him to perform a home invasion run around rape fantasy for her Mm -hmm. she doesn't want him to be an old aging weakling she doesn't want him to run out of steam she wants the energetic ambitious violent Carly Like Machiavelli said, fortune is a woman, she favors a manly, daring man, and so does Gail, even though she doesn't understand that the resources for that kind of life cannot be erotic bliss. The resource for that kind of life must be striving and war. Well, she says when they finally consummate their relationship there, that she knows how this story will end, where he's going to die in an emergency room and she's just going to be there crying. And so she says, you need to turn away from this gangster life, which is the very same thing, though, that she is attracted to. So there's a tension there. 
And of course, he does have the same contradictory impulses. He does want to run away from this kind of life because he has no desire to end up dead. But on the other hand, his view of the life of peace is utterly contemptuous. He doesn't want to be a used car salesman in the Bahamas, <laughs> but that's the example he picks because it is so full of self-loathing. Life as such has got to be danger until you die, or else it's just sickening. Mm-hmm. Is that self-loathing connected to his eroticism? Well, I believe he is honest in his reaction. The fact that she's stripping doesn't really bother him. The mm-hmm. fact that she's dancing with the mobster doesn't really bother him. Partly mm-hmm. because he's not a young hot blood anymore, but partly it's something else. Unlike most men, or especially most manly men, he is interested in seeing the beautiful, not just in seizing the beautiful. Yes. And that means that he experiences, especially when we see him in the rain, how insignificant he is in comparison with her. And that's tied up with his desire to escape the kind of life he wants to leave behind. Yes. Not just to be an anonymous pair of eyes, of course, but not to be the body that is Carlito, with all that that body brings with the reputation and the way of life and the inclination to turn the world into a river of blood. So he has an appreciation or recognition of the beautiful that doesn't necessarily require him to dominate it, possess it, but simply to contemplate it. Yep, and there is another piece of evidence for this. The club girl that keeps throwing herself at him and who recognizes his superior worth personally, not just because of his reputation, and who wants him because she wants to go upwards in her search for more important men, she asks him, why doesn't he just take her? (laughs) And she doesn't understand why. Why wouldn't a manly, murderous man, why doesn't he just do it? Just possessor, yes. He's not that guy. It's not clear that he ever was that guy. And if the invited rape fantasy is the most shocking scene in the movie, the second most shocking scene in the movie, which is just before, is also an erotic scene. He is at Dave's mansion, somewhere in the Hamptons, one imagines, but is, yes. has descended into an orgy over which he presides in an angry way because people are too obscene and he's trying to be a wasp in a double-breasted blazer with uh, tan dockers and uh, shoes. <laughs> so mm-hmm. He is an uh, arivist, he's a Jewish lawyer, he wants to be a wasp, but they're never going to mm-hmm. let him into their society. He wants to imitate mm-hmm. and buy his way in, which is partly why he stole all that money, it turns out. Yes. But he is presiding willy-nilly, this most improbable Dionysus, over an orgy that's straight out of Caligula, and (laughs) Carlito is sitting on the edge of the action in front of a boathouse on a chair waiting for his underling. He is sullen, Mm -hmm. he's again talking to this woman who again throws herself at him, and he's all of Al Pacino's smooth charm, but he's not there running around with a hard-on. No, He's not not at all interested in this. And you see who he really is there. Yes, there is no attraction for that orgy. He does not want to participate. One could imagine him walking in and immediately going to the boathouse saying, Davey, I'll meet you down there when you're ready. He can just observe this and he can observe Davey trying to deal, as you said, he's this angry guy issuing commands over people of how they're supposed to be behaving over this, this orgy. So Carlito's watching Davey try to manage this orgy. And he's sitting on the edge of the portrait of a man's descent by eroticism into tyranny and madness. And he just Mm -hmm. wants to get rid of it, to get away from it. 
not even noticing. This is not the guy you should be befriending. The guy makes him an invitation to do something that's inevitably going to lead to a catastrophe and the mob war, mm-hmm. and he can't say no because he won't pay attention to what's in front of his eyes. Yes, that's the scene I always found somewhat amusing, and exactly, he should see this and then turn away. And of course, Gail is already counseling him, even though she doesn't see the tyranny that extreme eroticism brings about. But here, Carlito sees it straight up and wants nothing to do with it. Yet he does not turn away from this, even though his girlfriend is advising him to. And there's the scene when Davey finally lays down his plan. The reason why he invited him to this party at his Long Island estate was because he needs to release Tony T, the gangster, from the Rikers Island prison barge, and they're going to use his boat to go and release him. Carlito is skeptical about this, and he realizes that Davey's in a bind because he stole a million dollars, and Davey keeps pressuring him. He says, are you in? Are you in this deal? But he also is spelling out the letter, are you in? Run away. And Carlito doesn't see that. He rather agrees to go ahead and participate. Oh yes, that's a great, subtle moment. You mentioned that I had not at all picked up on it. It's a really great find. He also pointed out with the sex joke, faster than a speeding bullet, it is also a case of tragic irony. Mm-hmm. The character doesn't know what he's saying, but he is saying the truth about his own fate. And I believe these are the limits of the self-awareness of Carlito. Now we can spring a kind of surprise on our audience. The orgy scene at the mansion is followed by the scene with Gail when they make love and she tries mm-hmm. to get him out of the business. And those two are followed by the scene at the Copacabana where friend and girlfriend come into conflict and it almost is a mob disaster and it spells the end for him. It's mm-hmm. an extraordinary sequence, subtle and understated as it is. It is unmistakable in its temporal logic. How That's it right. sets up the highest moment for Carlito when he's making love with and then dancing with Gail and then the inevitable downfall. That is the middle of the movie. Yes, and I believe even at the end of the Copa scene, there is some illusion that Kleinfeld makes about their date the next night, which is to go and release Tony T from prison, which, of course, is when we really see this descent into madness of Kleinfeld, and we see he's going to take matters into his own hands by killing the kingpin of one of the Italian gangs. Yeah, that's not going to end well. The scene at the Copa also recalls the first time he goes into Club Paraiso. In his paradise, just as he's seizing control of the joint, he sees this woman dancing who looks like Gail. She's dancing by herself. That also announces Mm -hmm. what will come in the future. But you see that all of a sudden he's stopping in his tracks because he's fantasizing already. He's divided in his heart between Mm -hmm. staring at that pretty girl dancing and on the other hand doing the ugly things necessary to take control over that club. Yes. I believe you also brought this to my mind. I hadn't thought of it, that this is Brian De Palma playing with uh, one of America's most treasured legacies, Humphrey Bogart as Rick, the bar (laughs) owner in Casablanca. Well, make a parallel with this, too, with uh, Scarface, because there's a Humphrey Bogart reference in both. In Scarface, of course, the Humphrey Bogart here is the gangster of his earlier movies. But here we see Carlito describe himself. He says in a voiceover, here I am playing Humphrey Bogart, managing the club. So we have Rick at Rick's place in Casablanca. And in a way, Rick is aloof to all the goings-on of Casablanca in a way in which Carlito is somewhat aloof to the goings-on in his club. But he sees himself as playing a role 
in this case, as you said, one of America's most treasured roles. And yet it somehow diminishes the status that Rick has in Casablanca by a comparison with Carlito. So there's a great difference between what's respectable and what's not respectable. And so America has chosen to remember Bogart in his most beautiful light in Casablanca. Rather, as you mentioned, the other Bogart, whom Brian De Palma alludes to so astutely, 30s Bogart, crime-ridden Bogart, tough guy on the verge of insanity rather than noble sacrifice. Mm -hmm. But of course, seen properly, not even in Casablanca, is Humphrey Bogart a nice guy, as you pointed out. No, he's not. He's a harsh guy all around. He's a smooth Mm -hmm. operator. He declares that he doesn't care about political affairs. That's right. And you see, at least on one occasion, he lets a guy just be taken to his death from his bar. That's right. Even though he can intervene, he remains aloof. And remains aloof ultimately to Victor Laszlo and his Ingrid Bergman character, although he does at that point act in a self-sacrificial manner. But yeah, there is. And of course, with regard to the whole war effort in Casablanca, he's somewhat aloof too. So Carlito is a murderer, but on the other hand, he was not a Nazi collaborator. Yes, right, right. (laughs) That's maybe putting things strongly, I'll admit. But De Palma is astutely pointing to the fact that Americans love a tough guy who has some redemption in him. But why do Americans love Bogart after all? And what do these guys like Scarface and maybe Carlito who might admire that tough guy with integrity? What do they love? He gets a friendship and no love. There's no happy end for him. He's just walking off Mm -hmm. into the desert. Whereas Mm -hmm. Carlito wants a happy end of his own. He wants to get Mm -hmm. away with the girl. And maybe these people should be a bit more worried about what they're admiring when they're admiring a noble sacrificial guy or a tough guy with integrity. And maybe America should be more aware of the fact that they want to punish him that he doesn't get a happy ending uh-huh. and I think that's more of the Palma's astute commentary on American cinema and what it says about the American heart and American society mm-hmm. so I was really pleased when you brought that up I had not thought of it the relationship to Humphrey Bogart and the Casablanca in particular so there's nobility there Rick loses out on what he personally would desire with Carlito his plan he wishes to fit into his own desires but he himself though is not able to achieve them yes that's so- true he neither gets the girl nor gets a way with his friend. And that also, of course, fits his crimes. He doesn't deserve as happy an end as the Humphrey Bogart character. He's much more thoughtful than that guy, but he's much less honorable. He's gone too far. And his friendship with Kleinfeld descends into breaking Tony T out of prison, which leads to the murder of Tony T and his son, which leads to the chase scene to bring Carlito down. But Carlito learns that Kleinfeld had betrayed him to the prosecutors. And so Carlito makes his way to Kleinfeld to make sure that Kleinfeld's going to get murdered. Yep. And once again, rather than confront him directly and just shoot him, he has this underhanded way of taking the bullets out of Kleinfeld's gun. So he's going to die faster than a speeding bullet, but it's sneaky. Yep. That's part of the transformation of Carlito. In Machiavellian terms, he starts a lion and ends a fox. Mm -hmm. And much like Machiavelli points out, a fox cannot fend off the wolves and one of them does get him at the end. You do see how he is hounded. Now that also shows a great resourcefulness you hadn't expected in Carlito. The final chase scene through Union Station and on the way to Union Station you see how cowardly and scared Carlito is. You see who he is as a private man and who he must have been as a boy before becoming a legend. But at Mm -hmm. the same time you see he is quite resourceful. He's always thinking on his feet. He never panics 
and uh, he's remarkably successful. Yes, if it were not for his decision not to murder Benny Blanco or for his decision of taking Pachanga for granted, we would have at least seen a partial success board the train and head towards Miami with Gale. But even throughout that whole action sequence, the kind of on his toes, ad hoc, finding ways to evade his demise. It's interesting, he's like a scared rabbit running, so he is this kind of incredibly weak character, but he is incredibly resourceful and he uses a lot of methods of disguise. I believe, is it a group of nuns that he stands next to because he knows the gangsters won't attack him and then he hides in various interesting ways. The other nice cue that the Palma gives you is he's at some point literally saved from his attackers by an interposition of sailors, I guess they are, who are yes. hitting the town. Uh-huh. Yep. There you have it, God and the military, America's most <laughs> beloved institutions, helping yes. this guy out. It's hilarious. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> and so he, quite adroitly, he's able to see circumstances as they're unfolding in front of him, and it works. And then, of course, you have a gun battle. Ultimately, he does have a confrontation, but his powers of observation, which I guess we've seen throughout, here he sees the way in which this peculiar arrangement of escalators is a way to actually save himself. Yep, and two things above all are noteworthy about him. First of all, he knows how to wait. His fear leads him to make himself invisible, to conceal himself, not to run like a headless chicken. Mm -hmm. The other thing is that he will move into trouble if it gets him out of trouble, like with the escalator scene, which is also really great action cinematography. Yes, and it's it's interesting to think of Machiavelli. He has been observing sights. Maybe part of his theoretical or thinking or reflective life has been in part on the necessity for studying war. The gangsters chasing him, he pretty much makes a hash of their efforts to get them simply by understanding the way in which this escalator works and just drawing them into it. It's almost an ambush and he takes them out. Yep, he is remarkably adroit for once you get a sense of why he has gotten as far as he did. And as he points out in his concluding monologue, he always knew he was going to end up in the morgue, but a lot later than a lot of people had thought. Yes. He eluded them for so long for good reasons. This is another part of the genius of De Palma's movie making. He knows how action cinema works and he manages remarkably to splash on an action cinema ending to a movie that's almost entirely devoid of action. Right. He forces you to follow Carlito around, to worry about him, to see him fearful and resourceful, and in a certain way to identify with him emotionally so that you get the full force of his tragic ending. Mm-hmm. He's not some kind of low life or some kind of criminal that you're apart from. That's right. I think the dazzling cinematography there and the sequence of that action scene to a certain extent, you could become forgetful of what's led him there, which is not admirable, and also maybe even forgetting how the movie began. So you begin to root for Carlito, even though the movie has already told us at the beginning that he's going to be shot. We don't know that it's actually the train station, the platform, that that is where he's shot initially, but the cinematography diverts our attention there. He gives the audience what he thinks they deserve to face Mm -hmm. up to their conflicted feelings, their strange addiction to happy endings, and the implicit suspension of moral judgment of being interested in a character. But on the other hand, he also gives Carlito what he deserves. He comes to the inevitable ending. But he also gets to be a legend. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) He goes out with a bang, not Ah, with a whimper. Mm -hmm. His closing sequence is blood pumping through the veins. What more could he have hoped for? Yeah, and like you said, it seems as if his final monologue voiceover is that this was always where he figured he would end up heading towards the morgue, just not as quick as others had thought. 
He deserves the sending, but that last sequence there and then going out with a bang at the very end being taken out by one angle that he didn't see, and he gets the last word in the voiceover. So that's like legend making. It's rare for a man to tell his story, actually. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> and that itself points towards that question of paradise again, or the return to paradise and the new and improved Carlito. Yes. I think this is a good way to wrap, John. All right. You think there was enough here? I think we've had remarkable insights here, and I'm sure we can carry the audience with us, though possibly not as expertly as De Palma does with his. Okay. And, of course, we're going to be doing more De Palma. We'll be talking about body doubles sometime soon. Yes. I look forward to that. Me too. I'm looking forward to learning even more from all the stuff you've noticed. And of course, we're going to have to do even harder work to justify the Palma in that case. Yes, here we're really dealing with the lowest of the low of uh, eroticism and violence and genre. So we're going to have to think hard about justifications. Yep. Well, we've got some time and I'm looking forward to it now. Sounds good. Thanks for a great conversation. And let's do this again soon. Okay. Thank you, Titus. Bye. Bye-bye.